But I want to ask you a question this morning. Um, I want you to think about this really carefully as we talk this morning. Actually, this came up on Sunday in Adam, Pastor Adam's sermon. So the question I have for you is, what do you feel in your life right now is holding you in bondage? What do you need deliverance from? What in your life feels like it's got its grip on you? You know, it could be like an attitude. Maybe it's an attitude of anger, unforgiveness, jealousy, bitterness, resentment. Maybe it's an attitude, an action or a behavior. So maybe it's an over-dependence on caffeine or alcohol. Or maybe it's a dependence on prescription drugs for pain relief or things that you just know are beyond what the doctors prescribed. Maybe it's something that you're drawing comfort from in a way that has become unhealthy. So excessive shopping, excessive exercise. Maybe it's a way that you're using to escape the pain of life too much, like YouTube, television, Netflix, social media, computer gaming, whatever it might be, let's just confess that we don't have perfectly balanced lives, right? And we spend a lot of our days sort of creating an adjustment for feelings and emotions and worries and concerns and griefs. And so would you think about that? Would you think about what is something that you are overly dependent on that you need freedom from? You need that grip to be unhanded and to be set free from. For me, it's a couple of eating patterns I have that I would love to break this year to be free of a craving to eat sugar or carbs, things that I love that make me feel good but aren't good for me. So we all have something, right? I'm sure we do. All have something. So would you think about that? Because I was just thinking about, think about that thing for a moment, and then think about what it would be like to be completely free, to be completely delivered, to be completely dependent on God, to meet your deepest needs, to provide for your deepest comfort, Never ever to return to that bondage or that stronghold or that grip ever again. To be living in the fullness of who God's created you to be, to be free to be you the way he's made you, to worship him, to celebrate, to rejoice in complete freedom. I ask you that because we're going to look at the Israelites this morning and we are going to see how God miraculously provided for their deliverance from slavery and bondage to Egypt and then carried them into a time of wilderness testing and yet during that suffering miraculously provided for all their needs. And what he does for them, he also does for us. And when he does it, he gets all the glory. It's all about him and we're going to see him get all the glory today. He is an amazing, amazing God. And so I've been praying today that your heart would be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving after our time together today, and that you would be reminded again of how you've already been delivered from death, 
through the blood of Christ, and how if you look back over your life, you will see how God has already provided for all of your needs to come to this moment, and that you will have greater confidence as you move forward and know that he will be faithful to you in whatever you're facing, whatever impossible situation that you're facing today. So we're going to look at our lesson in three parts. First, we're going to see how God miraculously delivers Israel from Pharaoh's armies. That's in Exodus 13, 17 through 15, 21. Then we're going to see how God miraculously provides for Israel's thirst in the wilderness, Exodus 15, 22 through 27. And then we're going to see how God miraculously provides for Israel's hunger with bread from heaven. And we're going to see that in Exodus chapter 16. And so through all of these things, we're going to see how God, his mighty acts of deliverance and provision bring him glory. Now, you know that we are not going to be able to look at all these verses in this huge chunk of scripture that we're looking at. So you're going to need to have your Bible. There's Bibles on the outskirts of the room. If you need to grab one, pull up the Bible on your cell phone, whatever works, because I can't put all the verses up on the screen that we're going to talk about. But let's start with the deliverance. Remember last week where we left off, the plague of death had come over Egypt and it had passed over the Israelites. Every Israelite who had painted the blood on the doorposts And on the lintel of the house, the angel death passed over, and their firstborn did not die. And now we find that the Israelites have been set free to actually leave Egypt. So can you imagine what it's like? The Egyptians are in the process, morning is dawning, and they are burying their dead, while the Israelites are marching boldly out of Egypt. The scripture tells us that there were 600,000 Men, So that tells us there, if you include women and children, there are about 2.5 million people who are getting ready to depart Egypt. And this was a journey of obedient faith. Because if you think about it, there was no catering service set up to feed all of these people. There was no provision made in advance for the food that they would eat. There were no porta-potties or thousands of porta-potties that they would need to go out into the wilderness. There was no, like, Exodus handbook that told them everything they needed to know about how to make this journey in the wilderness. They didn't have any of that. What they had they ha- was they had obedience to God's commands, and they had Moses as their leader. And in chapter 12, verse 40, we were told that the people had been in Egypt for 430 years. So remember, this is a generation of people who have never known anything other than life in Egypt. This has been their whole world, and now they're setting out. Scholars believe that this exodus took place in the year 1442 B.C. And from now on, this night, this night when when Israel was spared death of the firstborn, when they were freed to leave Egypt, this night would be remembered forever in their history as the Passover. And it would be celebrated as the Passover. And the Jews today celebrate the Passover. They celebrate this night in remembering how God spared them from death and set them free from bondage. And then God gives them instructions. So first of all, in the first chapter you looked at today, you're going to see a lot of like, how are we going to remember this night? And he gives specific instructions. Then he tells them that they're going to consecrate their firstborn unto him. So he's saying that because of his mighty acts in protecting and redeeming his own people from Israel, saving both the firstborn humans and the firstborn animals from death, God is now proclaiming that all firstborn belong to him. They're to be sanctified. They're to be set apart. Don't understand this as though that means they're going to be killed. Now, the animals may be killed as sacrifices, but the the people, the firstborn children, the firstborn sons, are being set apart unto God as 
Think of, think of them being set apart as belonging to him, not, not in death, but in life. That there would be sacrifices for their redemption. So there would be a blood sacrifice specifically for the firstborn to show that they're being set apart unto God. Now, later in Scripture, what we're going to see is that God calls the whole tribe of Levi to be set apart unto him, and they are called the, the, the tribe of priests, the Levi priests. So this is a set apart in devotion, in worship, um, sacrificed in the sense of being worshipers and leaders in the spiritual community. So that's what God is saying. He tells them, though, that this is going to happen when they get to the promised land, which they're not going to get to the promised land for quite some time. When we get to the books of Numbers and Leviticus, we'll look at this more closely. But um, what, what we find now is that the Israelites, they're, they're out of Egypt. They surely thought that all of the most dramatic experiences that they've had with God are over, and they're going to find they're not over, that God is just beginning to raise them up and to prepare them to be his people. It's interesting, it only took one night to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it's going to take 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And we're going to see that through these desert wanderings. The first thing that God does is he leads them, and he, um, he takes a route that is definitely not what we would expect. Um, I want to show you this first route that they took. If you look here, here's Goshen, where they were, and here they're kind of traipsing back and forth kind of in this area right here before they cross the Red Sea. So they're not, the straight path would have been straight across if they would have just gone straight across and into the promised land of Canaan over here. But instead, they're kind of wandering around over here a little bit in a confusing way. Now, the Philistines were in this area, and I know, I'm sure that God knew that if they crossed into Philistine territory, they were going to get into a war. They were going to be able to have to fight a battle. Um, Lord knew that the last thing the Israelites needed at this moment was to, to fight a war. So he chose a very different kind of route, kind of wandering around in that area. It was peaceful. It was giving them time to collect themselves. We know God's timing is not our timing, right? He seems to be more slow and patient. We seem to be more anxious to get where we're going. And interestingly, the Israelites at this point are also carrying the bones of Joseph. Joseph had, had made, a, made his descendants promise that they would bring his bones back to Canaan, back to the land of promise. And so they are now carrying the bones with them as they're heading out. God also is with them, and he's leading them. So this pattern that we see of them kind of going this zigzag pattern, that's how God is leading them. He's leading them with a cloud and by fire. So let me, let's look at this in chapter 13, verses 21 through 22. And the Lord went before them by a day in a pillar of cloud to, learn, to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So the cloud would offer them shade in the heat of the day in the desert sun. And the pillar of fire would give them warmth at night and give them light to see where they're going. It probably was cooler for them to travel at night, so the pillar of fire would specifically lead them. We're told later that this pillar of, of cloud and fire is the presence of the angel of the Lord with them. It's a visible manifestation of God's presence. Can you imagine just for a moment how amazing it would be to be in a company of people and to see this never departing presence of God leading 
knowing that this is God with you, this cloud that gives you coolness in the day and this fire that gives you light and warmth at night. Can you imagine what that would be like to see that? I mean, don't you think, I would have the most amazing faith if I could just see God like that. But do you know that though we don't have this visible evidence in the sky, we have the Word of God in our hands that we open the word of God and we see the character of God and we see how he engages with his people. The Bible is actually our light and our fire. It's, it's the spirit of God, the spirit of truth that is the one who guides our understanding. Aren't you finding in the study that you're having these ahas? Like, oh, I didn't know that before. Oh, that's so interesting. You're having this constant sense of, re- of knowing God, of revelation of God through his word because he speaks to us. He reveals things to us. He's our guide. And just as the Lord spoke to Moses through the pillar, the Lord speaks to us through the scriptures, and he provides guidance for our lives in the same way. What's interesting is that God is now enticing Pharaoh to chase Israel. Didn't you think that was interesting? It's kind of strange because God deliberately moves the people in such an erratic pattern that Pharaoh starts to think that the people are disoriented. He thinks, well, they're confused out there in the desert, so this would be a good time to to go and recapture them because obviously they're vulnerable out there and they're weakened, and I should bring them back because he's starting starting to dawn on him that he's in a little bit of an economic crisis with this huge labor force of people now just departing his land. And so in chapter 14, verse 5, it says that when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Wow, did he just forget what happened And the Israelites panic in chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Wow. What's really sad is that this pattern of thinking is going to be a reoccurring habit with the Egyptians. When things are going great, when they're happy and things are going well, they're very congenial. But the minute things start to go a little bit troublesome, we find that they quickly take their eyes off the Lord and they begin to complain and to whine and to want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to slavery and bondage. Now we read that and we think, what are you thinking, people? Don't you know what God is doing for you? But we kind of already know how the story is going to go. How do we respond in our own lives when a little bit of disappointment happens and a little bit of discomfort comes into our lives and the first thing we do is we forget how faithful God has been. We we take our eyes off the Lord and we start complaining, don't we? 2 Corinthians 5-7 reminds us that for we walk by faith and not by sight. You know, fear and faith can't reside in the same heart. One will triumph over the other. And so we need to choose faith, just like they did. 
But Moses, he remains really confident in God's power. He knows, he knows Pharaoh's army is no threat to God's power. He knows that God is with them. He tells them, do not be afraid. In chapter 14, verse 13, Moses said to the people, this is my favorite verse from our whole study this week. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So Moses commands them, stand still and be still. It reminds me of Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. And that's what Moses is telling the people, be still and know that God is for you. God then miraculously delivers them from their enemies. He does a series of miracles now on behalf of his people that that show that he's not only keeping his promise to them. Remember, he said, you will come out and worship me in the wilderness. He's fulfilling his promise, but he's also displaying his glory. He wants his people to know, remember, he is the one true God of Israel. He wants to show his glory to his people. So he does four, four amazing miracles. As they approach the Red Sea... They're standing on the edge of the Red Sea in verse 15. They're standing facing the sea, and he tells them to go forward. I mean, there's an ocean in front of them, and God tells them to go forward towards the sea. And you can imagine that it would feel to them like they're trapped in a cul-de-sac. There's no way out, and yet they're told to keep moving forward. And then God, the second miracle, is he takes the cloud that's been above them, that's been leading them, and he places it behind them, so it's between them and the Israelites. And we know that this becomes a wall of protection for his people. It gives the Israelites light, but it it makes darkness for the Egyptians. And then God opens a path through the sea. He tells Moses that he is to stretch out his hands, and this powerful wind is going to come. It's going to push back the waters, and it's actually going to dry the mud right going through the sea and make a pathway for them to walk through. And then the Egyptians follow, and the fourth miracle is that God actually brings confusion on them. So as they're pursuing the Israelites, they become confused. It's dark. Their, their wheels of their chariots get stuck in the mud. Things become really chaotic. And then the waters crash back down over the pursuing army, and the Egyptians are destroyed. It's interesting because you won't read about this event in Egyptian history books. You will read about it in Scripture. God preserved it for all time. But you have to know that the Egyptians never recorded any military failure ever in their history. They don't record military failures. But one thing quite interesting is that archaeologists have discovered that the Egyptians held this particular place, this place on the Red Sea, they they held it in reverence and awe. For 17 years after this happened, nobody got near. No Egyptian came near that place. It took 22 years before they actually were able to cross over and go back up to Syria where they had dominion. They never took control of Syria again for 22 years after this happened. And this place remained for many, many years a place where the Egyptians had great fear. And that is recorded in their history. Now, the the Israelites get to the other side, and they just burst out in worship. Can you imagine how they felt to be miraculously delivered from their enemies, to have this miracle of crossing through the sea, to be now on dry land on the other side, and they just erupted into praise In verse 31 of chapter 14, it says, 
Israel saw the great power the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And this chapter, chapter 15, is a beautiful description of worshiping with song and dance and, and, and words of praise and just this amazing celebration. It's how you and I are going to feel when we're delivered from that stronghold. We're just going to be dancing and praising and worshiping the Lord, and that's how they were. The truth that I see from, from this, these first chapters is that the more impossible the situation, the greater God is glorified in the deliverance. The more impossible the situation that you are in right now today, the more God is glorified through the deliverance. Can you think with me, what is this impossible situation that you're facing right now? What cul-de-sac do you feel trapped in? For you, it could be a marriage that's falling apart. It could be a, a dramatic or desperate financial situation. It could be a really oppressive work environment could be a great sorrow with one of your kids that's just going off the rails. It could be a broken friendship, a broken relationship with friends or broken relationships within your family. It could be a health crisis where you just don't know what the future is going to hold. There's so many things. We live in a broken world. We have so many situations every day that seem absolutely impossible. But what appears to be an impossible dead end for you right now, I want to encourage you that this can be an opportunity for God to bring great glory to himself and how he shows you the way through and brings you to a place of deliverance. I want us this week to really contemplate this verse, verse 13 and 14. I put parts of them together. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent I think about that. I think fear not, trust in the Lord. Like I do feel afraid of things at times as you do. Cast your fears upon the Lord. Cast your anxieties upon him. Stand firm in your faith. Plant your feet rooted down upon the truth of God's word and the rock of Jesus Christ. Believe that he will deliver you, that he is fighting for you, that he is before you, leading you, and behind you, protecting you. Trust in that. And then be still. And be still doesn't always mean to be silent. Sometimes it means to speak out. But it means to allow the Lord. Be still so you can listen, so you can know, what is the Lord telling me to do in this situation? Should I turn to the right or to the left? Should I stay planted? Be attentive. Notice him. Listen to him. Be communing with him before you make your next move. And then while you're waiting for him to show you the way through, worship him. Thank him. Remember his past faithfulness to you. If you've already been delivered from an impossible situation, I have been delivered from a couple of impossible situations in my life. The challenge for us is to continue to remember, to continue singing praises of worship and to remember what he's delivered us from. And because we know that we're not unlike the Israelites, that the minute we stop singing, it doesn't take long before we take our eyes off of his glory and turn them back onto our problems. And then we start complaining again which is exactly what we see happening next with the Israelites. As we look at the next section, we see that they, were, they left Egypt singing and praising and dancing and worshiping God, and then three days later, they are singing a very different tune. We know it's true. Like It's easier to trust God in the mountaintop experiences than it is to trust him when we're in the wilderness, when we're in the desert. It's human nature. 
But you have, we have to ask ourselves, how did they get to this wilderness? Well, God led them there. It's no mistake that they're there. Remember the cloud by day and the fire by night? They're there by God's leading. And let me just show you on this map. Um, maybe. I will show you on the map. There we go. So they've crossed the Red Sea here, and now they're headed south. They're headed down to Mara and to Elam. This is as far as we're going to go today, down here. So God could have, like I said, led them straight across the wilderness of Shur. It could have been a 40-day journey straight over to, the, to Canaan, but instead it's going to become a 40-year journey through the wilderness. Why didn't God bring them directly to the Promised Land? I mean, he had the power to part the Red Sea. Could he not have had the power to lead them for 40 days across the wilderness? Yes. But in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, Moses tells us why God didn't bring them there directly. He says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, to test you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now, God knows what's in your heart, in my heart, and in their hearts, but we don't know what's in our hearts. And so when God brings tests into our lives, it's to reveal to us what's in our hearts so that we can grow, we can respond to God in a way that grows us in spiritual maturity and faith. God is always wanting to bring out the very best of us. He is always working in this era of human history to make us more like Jesus. What we see, though, in chapter 15 is that there's a pattern that begins with the Israelites. It's a pattern that's going to be repeated over and over again as we watch them go through this 40-year journey in the desert. And I, I want you to, to see this pattern because I think we also follow the same pattern, so it's helpful to recognize it in ourselves. For them, it begins with abundance. Abundance is looking up. The, the Israelites praise God. God had taken them through the Red Sea. He had carried them to safety. They were worshiping. They were looking up. They were rejoicing for their abundance. For abundance is looking up. And then they, start, they had expectation, naturally. They're looking ahead. Okay, we're going forward to the promised land. How are all of these abundant blessings going to manifest themselves in our, in our forward journey with expectation? Um, they, they thought the, the blessings would continue. Surely Moses is their established leader now. He has already spent 40 years traveling around the desert. Surely he knows where all the fresh water is. He knows where the food is. He knows where the shelter is. They had great expectation that they would not suffer, that they would be completely comfortable in this journey. The same is, is true for us, that we, are, we experience a season of abundance, of blessing. And then we begin to think that blessing is our established right and just like the Israelites, they thought, well, if God provided through the Red Sea, why wouldn't he miraculously provide for all of our other comforts and safeties? So then that brings us to disappointment. So disappointment is when we're looking ahead and we have unmet expectations, and then we look down. When the Israelites looked down, they found there was no water. The water they did find was undrinkable. Now we know a day without water would be uncomfortable, Two days without water would be very difficult. Three days without water would be impossible. And so this was a real need for water for the animals and for the children. This was not an imaginary need. This was life-giving need. And they talk about the water. It's, they went to a place called Mara, where that means bitter. So the water that they found was salty and bitter. It was undrinkable. And so that leads them then to number four, which is grumbling. Grumbling is looking back. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? 
So usually when we complain and grumble, it's because we're looking back to an easier time, which is what the Egyptians, which, what the Israelites are doing. But grumbling isn't just expressing need. It's a, it was appropriate for them to tell Moses that they had a legitimate need. We need fresh drinking water. That was an appropriate request. But what happens when you're grumbling is that you're actually blaming someone else for your problem. So the Israelites were blaming Moses. They're saying it's your fault that there's no water. Yet ultimately what they're doing is complaining against God because God is the one who has led them there. And then the fifth stage is provision, which is God's grace. And that's looking around. Moses demonstrates this by looking around and turning his eyes up to the Lord and praying and asking God to provide. He cries out to the Lord, and by God's grace, he provides just what they need. Verse 25 says, He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. You know, God never will lead us where his grace can't keep us, can't sustain us. In chapter 15, verse 25, we learn this is all a test. God sovereignly designed this wilderness experience to be a test because he knows that for the Israelites and for us as well, that when that our attitude towards our difficulties determines the direction that we're going to go in life. So if we trust and obey God when we're in the depth of our wilderness experiences, we are actually going to pass the test by growing in faith, by learning more about God's character, by, by becoming more like Christ. There's a richness of experience that happens when we allow him to walk with us through the desert experiences of our lives. Also, though, if we adapt a spirit of grumbling and complaining and unbelief, we get stuck in, in spiritual immaturity. We don't actually move forward in faith. So complaining is evidence of unbelief, where obedience is evidence of faith. And then in the, verse, the next verse, it's so interesting because God actually, in chapter 15, verse 26, God actually tells them exactly what is going to happen. He says, look, he says, if you'll walk with me in obedience, if you'll trust me, you've seen my power, you've seen my glory, if you will just trust me, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to provide for all of your needs. He doesn't say, I'm going to provide for all of your greeds. He says, I'm going to provide for all of your needs. And so he's reassuring them. He's telling them, look, I'm not going to bring the plagues on you like I did to Egypt. I'm actually going to protect you. I'm actually going to guard your health and guard your physical well-being while you're on this wilderness journey. And I'm actually going to reveal myself to you in a new way. You are going to find that I am Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. So God is taking care of his people now, this is not a blanket promise that if you're a Christ follower, that you're never going to get sick and you're never going to have a disease, you're never going to be, be ill. That's not at all. God is saying to his people in a transitory time to the promised land where they're extremely vulnerable, 2.5 million people traveling across the desert where they don't have a catering service and porta potties, they don't even have a lot of shelter. He's saying, look, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to display my glory by caring for your physical bodies as well as your nourishment and your thirst. It's amazing that he would, all he asks is that they trust him. The truth that I want you to know is that grumbling is a sin against God. Ouch. Don't we all grumble? We do. Are you a grumbler? Watch your heart when you grumble. I heard a story this week about um, a guide, a tour guide in Blarney Castle in Ireland. He was telling some, some visitors who came that his job wasn't actually as glorious as it sounded. 
If you've ever been to Blarney Castle, you, you go, and one of the things you like to do is kiss the Blarney Stone. It's a sign of, of good luck. So he was telling them, he said, yeah, I actually had a group come through last week, and they were complaining about everything. They were complaining about their hotel. They were complaining about their food. They were complaining about their flights. They were complaining, 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 complaining. And he said, and then to top it off, we got to the castle, and we got to the Blarney Stone, and it was all roped off for maintenance. He said they were doing some, some maintenance work, and so they were out of their minds in exasperation because now they can't even kiss the Blarney Stone for good luck. So one lady especially was just beside herself, and she's like, I've come here all this way, and I can't even kiss the Blarney Stone. And the tour guide said, well, you know, it's been said that according to legend, if you kiss someone who's kissed the Blarney Stone, it's the same thing as kissing the stone yourself. And she's like, oh, really? Have you kissed the Blarney Stone? And he goes, no, but I've sat on it. <laughs> just to lighten the moment. <laughs> See, grumbling occurs when our hearts are discontented. Grumbling happens when our hearts are discontented. What are you grumbling about these days? John 16, one of my favorite verses, says that Jesus told us that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, a.k.a. don't grumble, don't complain. I have overcome the world. When you think about your life, where are you in this cycle? Are you in the, in the cycle right now of abundance? You're looking up. You've seen God do amazing things. You're praising him. Are you in a cycle of expectation? You're moving forward expecting that God is with you and he's going to walk with you and bless you. And actually, you might even have it in your mind that these blessings are going to continue and you're never going to go back to a season of suffering in your life. That's not a realistic expectation. Maybe you're in a season of looking down and you're looking at all the things that are going wrong and all the trouble that you're having and you're just, your, your countenance is, is, is focused downward and you're disappointed. Maybe you're in a season of grumbling. You're looking back and you're saying, oh, if only it could have been like the good old days. The good old days. Do you know what? When you're living in the good old days, you call them the good old, good old days. <laughs> it's hard to be content when you're looking back at the, or staying in the present. Maybe you're in a time of provision where you're looking around, you're looking up, and you're just asking God through prayer to come and meet your needs. You're inviting him into your wilderness experience. How has God provided you in the past, for you in the past? How might remembering his faithfulness from every day of your life to this actual moment, how he has been so faithful to you, how might that help you to trust him in whatever wilderness experience that you're in? What I love about this story is that they go from Mara the land of bitter water, and the next verse, they're in Elam, the, the land of fresh streams and palm trees. It says in, in verse 27, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Let's go on and look what happens next. The whole community now has been on the trail in, in the wilderness now for a month, because it says they arrive in Elam on the 15th day of the second month. So this is exactly one month since they left Egypt. And guess what? They're grumbling again in chapter 16. They're, they're looking back now again. They're looking back on all the food they used to have in Egypt, and they're feeling hungry, and they, they, they say that we'd rather have the bondage and the beatings 
at least we would have had the food to eat. Isn't that like selective memory? And don't we do that as well? We, we don't remember things rightly. We don't remember the pain and the suffering. We tend to remember just what we want to remember. And you might think, well, what about all these cows? Like, couldn't they eat the cows? Well, the cows was their, were their livelihood. They were shepherds. So it was important that they move the cows to Canaan so they can begin their, that's their livelihood. I think that if they would have started eating their cows, they wouldn't have had any cows when they got to Canaan because 2.5 million people eating cows, which will over a period of 40 years, would probably have not lasted. Maybe they did eat a few, I don't know, or milk, but the Bible seems to indicate that they did not eat their cows. So they, um, at this point, um, they have to trust God to provide to feed 2.5 million people. And God provides. In chapter 16, verse 4, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So he's testing them again to see if they're going to obey. And Moses makes it very clear to them that you are grumbling against God, not against me. He's pointing out to them over and over again, Your grumbling is a sin against God. In verse 7, chapter 16, it says, And in the morning, he says, You will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? He wants them to know they're going to see God's glory, and here they are grumbling about this. So the first thing that happens in, in chapter 16, verse 11, is he, God actually provides quail for dinner. Now, it's known in this part of the, the world that Large flocks of quail are known to fly, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that that the quail would be in the area. But what's astounding, what's miraculous, is that they would actually land and be easy to catch. And what's even more interesting is that quail was considered an Egyptian delicacy. So here they're complaining about wanting to go back to Egypt and eat Egyptian food, and God puts an Egyptian delicacy on the ground for them to catch and to eat. Amazing. And then he provides manna for breakfast. Now, manna, the word manna in Hebrew means, what is it? It's like, that's what they call it. What is it? It's this miracle that comes from God's catering service in heaven down to the earth, and it's this sweet, thin, flaky um, kind of wafer bread that, that comes every morning on the dew. But God also gave very specific rules, because again, he's testing them. He's like, I am providing for your needs, but you have to do exactly what I say. So here's what he says. He says they're going to have to, every day, they're going to have to uh, get an omer, which is two quarts um, per person. It's enough for just one meal per person. It's going to be very nutritious, because it's going to have to sustain them as they're traipsing through the wilderness on a hot desert day. He says you can't keep any until morning. If they did try to keep it, they discovered it had maggots and it stunk, so it didn't preserve. He said you have to gather it in the morning before the sun melts it in the hot day. On the sixth day, you have to gain, get enough for the seventh day because there wasn't going to be any manna on the seventh day, so you got two portions. And then miraculously, on the night of the sixth day, it didn't, it didn't rot. It was still good for the seventh day. But if you didn't get a double portion and you went out on the seventh day, you would find there was no manna and then you would be hungry. Now, God was preparing them already for the practice of the Sabbath. They had not been told about the Sabbath yet. That doesn't come till the Ten Commandments. But he's already establishing a pattern that there's going to be rest from labor one day a week. 
The purpose of these manna rules was to teach the people to obey God's instructions. It's so important. God is working with his people. His Mosaic covenant, which is going to come a little bit later, says, if you obey me, I will bless you. And so this is a a conditional covenant that he's preparing them for of obedience and blessing. The truth here is that manna is a picture of Jesus Christ, who is the true bread of heaven. Manna is foreshadowing the Messiah, who comes as the true bread of heaven. Let me let me read to you, and you can follow along with me on the screen, what Jesus says about this, this um, experience in the desert. John 6, verse 30. So the people said to Jesus, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." Jesus is the bread of life. And look, I want to just show you some comparisons here. Jesus is the bread of life. The only way to receive him is to take him into our inner being, just the way that the body takes the manna into the inner being. But while God gave manna only to Israel, God gave Jesus to the whole world. And while manna is sustained for physical life for people in the wilderness, the true bread of Jesus Christ gives life to everyone who eats of it eternally. And interestingly, in the same way that the Israelites had to stoop down in the morning to pick the manna up from the ground, people like you and me, who are sinful people, have to humble ourselves before the Lord in order to receive him as Savior. And while the Jews ate manna every day, they eventually died. But whoever eats the true bread of Jesus Christ lives forever with God And the way that we feed on the bread every day is through the Word of God. By meditating on the Word, by obeying what it says, God's Word is this, is the heavenly food that nourishes our spiritual life. And so we have to feed on it every day, which is why we're in Bible study together. We're learning how to feed on God's Word every day. And don't you find that you're being nourished? Don't you find that you're being strengthened, that you're being encouraged, that you're knowing God more deeply as you do? The manna had to be collected early in the morning, and for my life, I find that the morning is the time where I am best communing with God before the heat of the day, so to speak, dissipates my time and my focus. God is willing to feed us day by day, but we have to be willing to eat day by day. And just like the Israelites couldn't hoard the manna, and I think about how we go to church and we feel like, okay, I've done a, you know two hours in River West or wherever I go to church, and I've got my word box checked. It doesn't last the rest of the week. We have to be in the Word every day. It's a, it's a, it's a give us our daily bread. That's what the Lord does. So God's mighty acts of deliverance bring him great glory. Where are you looking for a mighty act of deliverance in your life today? Where are you being tested? Where are you being challenged to trust him for deliverance and provision? Will you pray and ask for God's power to be obedient and to be faithful wherever you are? God tests his people to strengthen us so that our faith will grow, that we will grow in spiritual maturity. Sometimes we find ourselves in the wilderness, and it's an opportunity to to flex our spiritual muscles, to go deep, 
with the Lord to, to really discover all the more who we are before Christ. Um, he's working always to develop us into people of faith. And he teaches us our most painful lessons sometimes in our wilderness wanderings. I, I will have to just confess that every rich, true, wonderful thing I've ever learned and experienced with God has been in a time of difficulty and struggle. And it actually makes you thank God for those times because you never would know him the way you do if you didn't walk through the wilderness with him. But he is always faithful to provide for our needs. I wanted to share this last quote that I, I, I love this quote. He's from an American preacher. His name is, is Phillips Brooks. And he says, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Isn't that awesome? Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you and just confess that we are, we are just like the Israelites, so quick to grumble, so quick to take our eyes off you, so quick to think that you won't provide for our future, that there's no way out of this impossible situation. There's no deliverance possible. Lord, we despair so quickly. And I just ask you, Lord, to please meet us in those places of despair, in those places of fear. Help us to stand still. Help us to be silent before you, to listen for our next instruction, to obey you, to be faithful towards you, to, to remember your past faithfulness, Lord. We are we're so small-minded, and Lord, we want to be women of great faith. We want to be strong in your spirit, Lord. We want power equal to the tasks that you've called us to, equal to the lives that you've carved out for each one of us. And so I pray, Lord, that that would be possible by faith in Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. Help us, I pray, dear Lord. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.